I mean, we looked at empirical evidence after, after last Saturday. There were like 5% we were getting of that vote in our primary that ordinarily doesn't vote. That's a white, uh, moderate, female vote voting in our primaries. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. Good morning. A lot happening at the State House this week. The governor joined state health officials to announce Indiana's first coronavirus case. Also coming up, we'll hear from Speaker Brian Bosma as he prepares to hand over the gavel tomorrow. This is lawmakers also consider a bill to deal with the Curtis Hill controversy. We're also recapping a wild week on the campaign trail after former VP Joe Biden wins 10 different states, including Texas. Bernie Sanders won the state of California, but now trails the delegate count in what's essentially a two-man race now heading into Michigan and a handful of other states that vote Tuesday. All this coming after several major candidates drop out of the race in recent days, including former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who endorsed Biden this past week. We'll talk about the impact of all of that coming up. But we start with the coronavirus. Another wild week on Wall Street. This as Governor Holcomb announces Indiana's first case. Even as some in the White House describe the virus as contained. I have just signed um, and declared a public health emergency um, to ensure that the state of Indiana is in the absolute best position to get the federal funding. This has been contained because the president took action and a lot of you criticized him for doing that. And we made a good move. We closed it down. We stopped it. Otherwise, uh, the head of CDC said last night that you would have had thousands of more problems. All right. Meantime, there are a lot of Hoosiers on the front lines of this fight in Washington, D.C., including Vice President and former Indiana Governor Mike Pence. Trevor Shirley is in our Washington Bureau with more. Trevor. Dan, good morning. As federal officials continue to roll out plans to fight the coronavirus, we're hearing from several Hoosiers spearheading those efforts, including Vice President Mike Pence and the Surgeon General. Let's be clear. Uh, the risk to the American people of the coronavirus remains low, according to all of the experts that we're working with across the government. You are more likely to be exposed to flu than you are to coronavirus. By the end of the week, we believe we'll have shipped 70, enough for 75,000 people to be tested. It is covered in Medicaid and Medicare, and people on those programs can get tests in the individual exchanges. And on Friday, President Trump signed an emergency spending bill. That frees up more than $8 billion to continue fighting the coronavirus. That includes $3 billion to continue vaccine research and more than a billion dollars to help international efforts stop the spread. Reporting in Washington, I'm Trevor Shirley for In Focus. Trevor, thanks. Now, in recent days, we also caught up with a number of Indiana lawmakers, including Senator Mike Braun and Congressman Andre Carson and Trey Hollingsworth. Look, it's hugely important that we have a whole of government approach that enables us to contain all of the dimension of this, whether it's the economic potential fallout, whether it's the health potential fallout. I want to make sure that we have a unified, non-political approach to this so that we can ensure that Americans have confidence that their government is doing everything it can to mitigate all of the potential worst outcomes from this. I do not want to see this outbreak all the way across the country. I want to see us making efforts to contain it locally where it is today. I think we should be very critical and watchful, um, but we still have responsibility. We can't just sit back and criticize. We have to play an active role as a legislative body, and we have to play an active role as citizens in making sure 
we're putting pressure on the administration and elected officials to make sure we're doing our due diligence at containing this virus and ultimately eradicating the virus altogether. I think we are as uh, alert and ready to go as we could possibly be. You know, I thought that was the case last week, but there's just additional information out there now in terms of the number of test kits that they're going to try to ramp up to. Also getting feedback from some of the places where it has been, you know, a really a bad problem, other countries. So we're learning from some of that information. I think that there is going to be a true economic effect, uh, especially in places like China where your infrastructure was not in place and you've had travel bans affecting you know commerce in and out of your country here i think that uh, we've seen with the market bouncing back as a general indicator uh, we won't know this until we get the gdp figures that will come out uh, at the end of the first quarter so uh, i think the good news is that the underlying economy is as strong as it could possibly be to take a outlier like this and absorb it, get through it, and not have any real long-term effect other than what has been caused so far, and depending on how many cases we got across the country and which countries have the most of them, uh, it's going to be, to some degree, measurable, but I think in the context of how strong the economy is in general, it would again be something I wouldn't uh, get too alarmed about. I think we're going to find out when we get through this that uh, one of the strong suits was the fact that we've got an economy that's doing as well as it possibly could to confront something like this. All right, more of those interviews on our website on this and other topics. Meantime, at the State House, lawmakers are about to wrap up this year's legislative session with a changing of the guard tomorrow as Speaker Brian Bosma hands over the gavel to new House Speaker Todd Houston. Our Kayla Sullivan has more. House Speaker Brian Bosma is retiring after 34 years. Tomorrow morning, he will hand over the gavel to Speaker-elect Todd Houston. Here's what he had to say previewing this historic upcoming moment. Monday will be weird, uh, but uh, I have not, I've not set out here for a decade and cast a vote from, uh, from the floor, so that'll be a different, uh, just, just a different feel, just for a few days, and I'm very confident Speaker Houston will do a great job. This is a little bittersweet. Uh, I've invested 34 years uh, here at this institution, a uh, couple on staff before that, and then of course with my dad here for 21 years. So, so it's a little bit of an end of an era personally for me, but I'll still be around, still very active law practice, be involved nationally in legislative politics as well. This is the last week for the 2020 session. Some are saying lawmakers could wrap up as early as Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. Reporting from the Indiana State House, Kayla Sullivan for In Focus. All right, Kayla, thanks. This week, Speaker Bosma was also asked about the bill that could lead to the end of Attorney General Curtis Hill's time in office. House lawmakers passed an amendment which would prevent Hill from seeking re-election if his license gets suspended. Last month, a disciplinary hearing officer recommended Hill's license be suspended for two months. And it will be up to our Senate colleagues whether they think this is uh, important enough of an issue to deal with here at the end of the session. I personally think it is. I think it uh, gives much needed clarity to what happens. The amendment impacts the current situation with the Attorney General, but really it's about setting the right policy for the state of Indiana going forward. It, it avoids some 
very, uh, I think, some onerous possibilities, including one of the parties nominating a candidate that might not be eligible to be sworn into office. We just don't need to have all those complications. We've put up with Curtis Hill and his misbehavior for two years, and the Republicans have finally decided that the risk to their party, the risk to their electoral chances are so high that they want to get rid of Curtis Hill. Now, to some extent, they're kicking the ball down the, down the hallway to the courts. So if the courts punish him long enough, for a long enough period, if the courts punish him soon enough, then we will throw him out of office and he can't run for election. Look, this is all about the Republicans' internal problem with a man they've kept in office for two years. I tried to get the guy impeached. This is just, they finally woke up as to how bad Curtis Hill is and how bad the problem is for them. All right, the governor saying this week that he would support the bill if it gets to his desk. There's also controversy at the state house over the issue of mass transit. The state Senate passed a bill that could lead to harsh penalties for Indigo. The bill would penalize Indigo for not establishing a not-for-profit foundation via the red line in a timely manner. This bill could halt future expansion projects by Indigo as a result. People in Indianapolis understand it's important for people to have transportation. It helps people get to jobs. It helps a lot of other things. What we need to do is have the legislature understand this is about Marion County. And for some reason, Marion County has been on a chopping block this session on several occasions. And unfortunately, with a supermajority Republican House and Senate and Marion County being the largest Democrat uh, stronghold in the state, they always come after us. And I, it's, it's sad because a lot of the legislators who voted on this legislation don't even live in Indianapolis. Their constituents will not be harmed by this. The state statute required a 10% uh, private match and was has been disregarded. So that I don't think that's a valid response. I think it's actually the city council and Indigo officials have uh, not complied with the statute. So if there's fault someplace, probably lies there. I personally believe some of the issues that we're dealing with with the state capital are of importance to me as my hometown. And uh, we're, we're going to deal with a few of those still. I think feel that those are important. We'll keep you posted next week as the session winds to a close. Up next this Sunday in Focus, talking with our panel about the race for president. What's the ultimate impact of Pete Buttigieg dropping out to endorse Joe Biden? And the race to replace Susan Brooks in Congress as we sit down with more of the candidates in a crowded congressional primary. who is part of my campaign, to join me because we have found that leader in Vice President, soon-to-be President, Joe Biden. Well, what a week in the race for president. Now a much smaller field of candidates as we bring in our panel today to talk about this week's top stories. We actually have a larger group here than the Democratic field currently. Joining us this week, former state party chair for the Indiana Democrats, Robin Winston, former Marion County Republican chair and former state lawmaker Mike Murphy. We're also joined by a new face this week, Alexandra Hudson with the Young Voices. She's also a former policy advisor for the Department of Education. And Adam Wren, who is, of course, a contributing editor for Politico and Indiana 
Indianapolis Monthly. What a week here, guys. A stunning turn of events, really, in just one week's time, uh, both on Wall Street, the coronavirus fight, and on the campaign trail, uh, with a lot of Hoosiers on the front lines here in some really crucial moments. That's right, Dan. Yeah, uh, in South Bend last Sunday, I was there as Pete Buttigieg withdrew from the race, and he really withdrew uh, with sort of maximum leverage. And by endorsing Joe Biden um, on Monday in, in Dallas, he really, impact, yeah, right? he really yeah. made a big impact. Uh, Biden talked about him in sort of a loving, fatherly way. You wonder if he's going to be uh, a potential vice presidential candidate. Uh, and then you look at our current vice president, Mike Pence. He's really leading the charge on coronavirus. And what he does uh, over the next few months will really define or or halter his, his legacy yeah. uh, as, in the vice presidency. Let's talk about the coronavirus. You often hear about the politics of uh, fear, but there are things people genuinely fear that transcend politics, and that may be what we're seeing here with coronavirus this week, especially as it hits here now in Indiana, but a lot of people wondering how much do we need to fear this? Is it something to fear? Um, yeah, we just heard, you know, a few hours ago, the Gov Governor Holcomb declared a state right. of emergency with the first case of coronavirus um, being announced here in Indianapolis. And I think it's interesting to think about the way in which these crises, crises like this, they really show us who we really are. And I think um, as, as a country, as a nation, what we value, and I think we can just, you know, compare China's uh, approach to how they've responded uh, to this crisis from the beginning. It's been disproportionate and almost dystopian. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Dr. Lee, back in December, the first truth teller he came forward and wrote he published about um, the coronavirus that the Chinese authorities came to his door and forced him to recant yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a situation there, right and now China. they're going door to door and, and they're 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 rounding people up but we don't have that here we have free-flowing information in, in America and we, that's a lot to be grateful for how does it impact uh, an election year Mike in the midst of everything else happening well here in the One state of, of Indiana no we really don't have a race for governor let's be honest right. you know the governor has Eight and a half million dollars. Uh, last I heard, um, Woody Myers had sixty or seventy thousand. Uh, recent Indiana Chamber uh, polling shows um, Holcomb with a historic high job approval rating of seventy-one percent. They've never seen that before. Even when people like Evan Bay and Bob Orr were governor, you just don't get that high. This guy is the next governor, and what he does is, uh, as far as the coronavirus goes, is exactly what he did this morning declare the emergency, let your health professionals handle it. And as Dr. Box said a week or so, we've got this handled. We've done this before with other viruses. Robin, what do you make of the week that was? Uh, going back to Super Tuesday, too, you know, there had been all this talk of a contested convention, potentially. You almost have to wonder now uh, if our primary in May is even going to be contested. Depends if Sanders can win in, in some states like Michigan this week. I think that uh, Joe Biden did very, very well, obviously, on Super Tuesday. He's going to do very, very well this coming week. And I think he's going to make sure that Indiana will have a primary, but I don't think it will be nearly as contested as 2008 was, um, and even 2016. Uh, he has brought a level of normalcy to this. People called me after, after South Carolina and that, that hadn't returned my, because I'm supporting him, hadn't called me back and were, what can I do to help? I think you're finding more they and more people. They hadn't to talk to you about it a few weeks no, ago. No, before he was dead in the water, Robin, you made a mistake. Now it's like, let's see what we can do to get him elected. What does this say? Uh, you know, you had Bloomberg and Steyer in the race, spending a lot of money 
uh, the impact of their campaigns basically basically falling apart right on contact. Yeah, I think if you look at Bloomberg, the results are a little bit different. You know, uh, pundits sort of rushed to say that his candidacy and he wasted all that money after spending, you know, roughly more than $500 million. But he actually won delegates in a short amount of time. He wasn't in the race that long. So a political science experiment for the ages, I think. And I, I think he did move the meter. He, he picked up more delegates ultimately than Pete Buttigieg did, who'd been running for two years. But certainly didn't last as long as he'd hoped. What, what do you make it's of encouraging. that political it shows science us that, experiment? You know, democracy works. Elections can't be bought. You know, I think that's an important takeaway. <laughs> Where are we headed next? Well, what this shows, though, we're missing the big point in all this. What this shows is the Democratic Party, the supposed party of diversity, ran off through a vote every woman, every African-American, every Latino, every Asian, every gay candidate, and they got two guys who are almost 80 years old to represent the party of diversity. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you must be disappointed here, sir. I'm not disappointed. You just named all the diverse groups that are not in your tent at all in your party. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that we are diverse. And the fact that we have candidates, by the but way. But you're choosing two old white guys. Yeah, but we actually know? nominated a female for president. You guys have never done anything like that. So, you know, we have been diverse from day one. Please, I appreciate your commitment to diversity on our side, but we are doing okay. <laughs> We're doing very, very well. I will say this, though. What you just said is exactly right. It showed that democracy matters. Let's talk when you to, come down to it, people want to go vote. Let's talk about civility in politics here a little bit. You had a situation this past week <laughs> involving State Senator Mike Young being criticized for what Democrats said was a, a homophobic comment on Facebook about Pete Buttigieg. You also had Chuck Schumer facing criticism for comments seen as threatening two Supreme Court justices with Senator Braun and others calling for Schumer to be censored. Alexandra, you've written a lot about civility in politics. What do you make of those events this week? Um, I think we can take encouragement. We hear a lot that um, civility in politics is lacking today, but the responses to both Senator Young's unfortunate comments and to uh, Chuck Schumer's uh, threats against two Supreme Court justices um, was swift and pretty universal. Um, so it's nice to know that we still have these, these standards of, of what is appropriate in public discourse that, uh, that, um, that, 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 that do exist. And also so it's, it's important to remember that um, the voice of the people matters. Like politicians say what they think will play well with, with the voters. And so uh, it's an important role for voters to hold our leaders accountable. Um, and, and I think we, we've, we've done that in, this, in these circumstances. Certainly politicians always find a way to uh, get their foot caught in their mouth. We, we've seen that happen before. That's right. Um, you know, the difference is, I think, in this case, is that Chuck Schumer quickly apologized for his uh, remarks. I don't think that we've seen President Trump as quick to apologize for his remarks. And he's attacked the judiciary in more aggressive ways than this before. Um, you know, here at home, Senator Mike Young posted a homophobic comment on a Facebook meme um, in response to Pete Buttigieg. Uh, and hasn't apologized for it yet. And Indiana Senate Republicans have, have really done nothing to punish him publicly or, uh, you know, claim responsibility for that. So I think, you know, this is a, a both-sides situation. Let's also quickly talk about some of the other developments this week in the State House. You have the legislation dealing with Curtis Hill. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, what's your take on this now? House Repo Republicans proposing that if he's suspended more than a month, he can't legally be on the ballot. They're looking to put that into state law. We'll see if the state Senate agrees this week as the session winds down could be one of the big issues to watch here. It's the clear they don't want the guy to be attorney general. I mean, they're passing legislation to reflect what a judge recommended to the Supreme Court for discipline. They're trying to make that codified now because they don't want him to be attorney general. They've all spoken out and said they don't want him to be attorney general. I do think, though, there, there's no more sunny die parties, right? 
Well, I don't know. I haven't been to one of those in years. <laughs> so <laughs> I, do, I think that the focus will be the session ended, and it'll be a reminder again that the session ended and he was involved in the party at AJ. Mike, let's, let's suggest one thing, though. There's, there's Speaking of bars, there's talk in the bars around the state house that if this all plays out, the governor could and may actually appoint Brian Bosma as the next attorney general. Hmm. That would be a very safe He's choice. Very he could hold it uh, you know, through the term. Or he could run himself because he's open to run for something. Bosma's now. last day as speaker tomorrow. We'll talk more about that on our podcast. Up next, we're talking with two more candidates in Indiana's most crowded congressional primary. Stick around. We'll be right back. Well, the race to replace Susan Brooks continues. And today we're talking with more Republican candidates in the race for Congress in Indiana's 5th Congressional District, which covers parts of Indianapolis, Hamilton County, and beyond. 16 candidates in the GOP primary. We spoke with two of them in recent days, including one who says he wants to see marijuana legalized. So um, look at our neighbors. We've already got Illinois. We've got Michigan, um, possibly Kentucky and Ohio. Um, also legalizing marijuana, and I think it's time. You want to see it done at the federal level? I do want to see it done at the federal level. There's so much going on in Washington. Congress's approval rating is at an all-time low, and uh, I just, I, I feel that I need to do something about it. I have a lot of business experience, work in the corporate world. I taught at college level. I started my businesses, but I also became a legislator and understand the challenges of legislative branch and the importance of it. So I think bringing that perspectives and values to Congress, it's extremely important because we have to start working on policies and deliver results. All right, you can see more of those interviews on our website and on next week's edition of In Focus, when we'll also sit down with State Treasurer Kelly Mitchell. All right, stick around. We're back to wrap things up right after this. All right, time for this week's winners and losers. Robin, I'll start with you. Medical professionals that are helping us address the coronavirus. Losers is, once again, uh, Curtis Hill. Mike. Uh, the winner has to be Joe Biden. I mean, we haven't seen a comeback like this in maybe modern American history, political history. And another winner has to be Brian Bosma for a 34-year career, um, just an outstanding speaker. And he's either off to the sunset or maybe another political office. We'll you see. never know. Stepping down tomorrow. <laughs> Alexandra. I'd say Governor Holcomb for um, setting the tone for a really transparent um, approach to communicating with Hoosiers about what's going on um, from from uh, his perspective. And the loser, that poor gentleman uh, who has the coronavirus, that's uh, right. Yeah, uh, oh, poor <laughs> guy. came back yeah. from Boston. So. Thankfully, he's doing all right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's great. But nonetheless, the first in our state, Adam. Uh, loser would be Senator Mike Young for his homophobic comments about Pete Buttigieg. Winner, Pete Buttigieg. He ran an incredible campaign, raised more than $100 million from a million donors, uh, and has a real bright future ahead. All right, we'll leave it there. Much more on our podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus. All right, here with our panel right now as we talk a little bit more on the podcast today, Robin Winston, Mike Murphy, Alexander Hudson, Adam Wren. We're talking about Speaker Brian Bosma. Last day, Monday, as Speaker of the House, as they transition now to uh, Speaker-elect Todd Houston, who presumably will be the Speaker next year. Republicans expecting to hang on to the majority <coughs> there, certainly at the State House. Um, what about Bosma's legacy? And also just the, the changing of the guard here at the State House. some really big names that have been... Uh, that have been retiring this year. Also, another former speaker, Pat Bauer, 
Robin, as you look back, kind of an end of an era uh, situation here. It is, here at the and State an House. end of an era of civility. You know, I was fortunate to work for Frank O'Bannon, who was a master of civility, had been lieutenant governor, had been a state senator, and then was governor. Um, I think Bosma did the same thing. He really was a disc break in between different factions of his party to keep one faction at bay. Um, Pat Bauer did the same thing on, on our side. Speaker is a tough job, you know from being a state rep. It's a very tough job, and we lost two institutions uh, here this session. Well, you might even see more disc breaking here in the final days. They've got to <laughs> settle that Curtis Hill legislation and a well, couple of other issues. There's right? that. You know, Boswell, one thing, you know, he and I did not always agree on things, that's for sure. But I can tell you the one thing I respected most by him is his ability to improve the process. He took the House from being, um, you know, uh, joked about sometimes as far as our, you know, lack of... Uh, Lack of a cohesive process. Had a lot of transparency he, with video. Yeah, the live he turned it of into a much more hearings. professional yeah. process. He got things done quicker, more efficiently. As as Robin said, he was able to let the 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 crazy ideas, you know, get their peak above ground for a day or two, and then he would shut them down gracefully. Um, he just handled the position of speaker very, very well. Well, and you mentioned civility, Robin. Alexander, again, that's something you've written about quite a bit. You, you see at the State House, you see things operate with much more civility than you, you tend to in Washington, it seems. It's true. For the it's, most part. It's true. I think Not that's, always, that's an encouraging observation you make, Dan, that um, at the state and local level, it often doesn't reflect. Um, the rancor and the discord that we see at, the, at our national level, and that's it's encouraging to take, to take hope from that. I think at the national level, um, you know, we see more and more our public leaders um, rationalizing the incivility of their political allies. You know, like you're fighting the good fight, you're on my team, so your incivility is justified. Um, and then and then condemning the incivility of their opponents as you know an affront to human decency. And I think it's important. Um, um, Mr. Wren alluded to this earlier. It's important to hold everyone accountable. Everyone at the same high standards of, of civil discourse of of treating our fellow citizens, our fellow persons, uh, with dignity and respect that they deserve. So we talked about that earlier with Senator Mike Young, Chuck yes, Schumer exactly. facing scrutiny this week. Yeah, I think for me, what we really need to um, find a space for in our society is humility, the ability to. To um, look at ourselves in a circumspect way and be able to apologize when we get things wrong, uh, we don't really do a good job of that. Either Democrats or Republicans or Independents. What's that word? Humility. Hum humility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's that? yeah. Uh, the great, the great uh, author and ethicist C.S. Lewis used to say that uh, humility wasn't thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less. And mm -hmm. I, I feel that we, you know, lack the ability uh, in society and politics. Uh, to do that and to hold ourselves uh, with a little less self-seriousness and to say, look, I, you know, I made a wrong comment. Um, I'm wrong. I'll learn from it. I'll get better. Um, and on the same side, forgive. On the other side, forgiveness. Uh, we have to learn how to forgive and move past uh, these moments of incivility. But let me suggest, I think the reason we do have more civility in Indiana is because we argue over smaller gradations of issues. Okay, <laughs> we don't have the extremely polarizing uh, personalities in the Indiana. State House that we have in Washington. We always like to say that Democrats in Indiana would be Republicans in Massachusetts, right? We just, we tend to be a little more center-oriented mm -hmm. than we than the other parts of the country. And so Pat Bauer, you know, my good friend from my hometown, was probably one of the most polarizing personalities over the last 30 years. But when you got to know him, he was really more entertaining than polarizing mm -hmm. because he was a drama major at Notre Dame and he <laughs> brought the drama to the microphone. So yeah. again, less 
less polarizing personalities, a little bit closer on the issues. We usually agreed on the goals. We just didn't always agree on how to get there. Can we see past the polarizing politics in Washington as we enter this coronavirus situation? And obviously, th there's a lot of back and forth this week about the administration's handling of it. The, the president, Kellyanne Conway, saying Friday, using the words, it's contained. Obviously, you're seeing it pop up now in other states. So there will be political mm -hmm. back and forth, right, about the, the government's response. But also, doesn't there need to be kind of not just a whole of government response, but kind of a whole of America response to something like this in a lot of ways, too? Yeah, this is a chance for leaders on both sides of the aisle to be larger than the moment, and we'll see if they can rise to the occasion. Um, you know, transparency is, is important. And, you know, Republicans are saying that Democrats are politicizing this. But um, at the same time, I think Republicans need to say, look, we may not get this response right. We're going to learn from it as we go, and we'll, we'll do our best. And we need to give them space to, to be able to do that. The bottom line is the president has to quit making crap up on the fly. You know, he doesn't know anything about science. That's why I said, you, you know, I'm so glad to see Holcomb turn things over to the medical professionals. I don't know whether Republicans or Democrats, but he's turning them over to people like Virginia Kane and Dr. Box, right? Mm -hmm. Trump just, I mean, he just flies off the handle, just makes crap up about, you know, the the the, uh, the flu, you know, calling it the coronavirus flu, and we've got it under control. And by the way, if you have coronavirus, go ahead and go to work. Yeah. I mean, it's just all over the place. The There's best the best way to resolve this for him politically is to resolve this. He, keeping it alive, it's it's affecting the stock market. So then that means he gets a retort. He blames the feds. Everybody he even went back and blamed Obama the other day. I mean, come on. At some point, Mr. President, you've got to stop that. Promulgate something from, from the Department of Education about what it will mean to our schools and what we can be doing at the local level. At this point here in Indiana, I ask schools, that's not even been done here at the local level in Indiana for, for our school system. So you got 1.1 million kids and, and nothing being sent out about that. We've got to quit playing politics with this and really address it as a health issue. It's one of those things, uh, you know, we always want to know what's going to happen next uh, as political pundits, just as citizens. You don't know what's going to happen next. No one saw this coming a few months ago, and we don't know if it's going to right. turn into a serious situation or if it's if it's not going to be a serious Completely situation. Completely agree with my fellow panelists. It's important not to politicize it. It undermines faith and already corroded faith in government. Mm -hmm. um, but just to tie the last two things you said together about civility of the coronavirus, Dan, mm -hmm. uh, George Washington uh, had these 110 rules of civility that he copied as a 14-year-old student uh, when he was in school. And it was uh, copied from a... Uh, uh, an old Jesuit book of civility, and, and a lot of these rules can help us today. They're all about sanitation. They're all about like you know, just like not not you know invading other people's personal space and <laughs> washing your uh, hands. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. <laughs> washing your hands, and and so that's, that, that's another part of civility, right. just the etiquette of like personal space and, and privacy. So yeah. of course, look up one of Washington's yeah. <laughs> one of Washington's should have been take better care of your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, one of them go. actually. That's, Don't that's, pick your teeth in public. That's yeah, one of his that's, rules. That's, yeah, that helps. I think in this situation, too. Yeah. Uh, stunning events this past week. Obviously, you know, we mentioned Wall Street, the coronavirus. You mentioned Joe Biden um, and, and his bounce back in the polls. Um, where, where are we headed in this in this race for president now with uh, Michigan looking like a pretty key state uh, for Bernie Sanders? Here. Yeah, Bernie will need to perform, outperform expectations in Michigan and beat Joe Biden there, I think, to really keep his candidacy alive. If he can't win in Michigan, his argument of being the tribune of the middle and working classes really begins to fall apart. Uh, I think you've seen a historic, never-before-seen uh, coalescing around Joe Biden uh, and the Democratic Party that's happening uh, 
Um, it's quite remarkable. I thought of the movie uh, Avengers as Beto O'Rourke, <laughs> as Beto O'Rourke and Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg all rushed to rally with Biden. It was like a Marvel uh, comic universe <laughs> film where all of these moderate uh, superheroes came together to save their guys. So. But you mentioned earlier off camera um, Klobuchar campaigning with Biden right away yeah. in Michigan. Right? Yeah, well, it's Buttigieg, interesting. Not, yes. not quite on the campaign yeah, trail. So, so Buttigieg last week um, went to Dallas on a private plane, endorsed uh, Biden at a separate rally from Klobuchar, then flew back to South Bend. He uh, met with his staff on Thursday and had one last big going away party. Uh, but he will go air quiet until tomorrow when he does his first television interview. Um, and he's not been on the trail since endorsing her like Klobuchar will, uh, will have been this past weekend. Um, so that's interesting to me. I'm interested to see how he'll be used as a surrogate by the campaign, whether he'll be out on the trail in places like, you know, Indiana's main yeah, primary. I imagine you might yeah. see him here yeah. if the primary is contested. Oh, yeah, I hope he yeah. would be here. I hope he'd be sure. stumping with us. But right. the guy I'm watching is Mike Bloomberg. Because he's running ads right he's got now. All the money, right? Yeah, and he's got the he, staff. He could literally bankroll the. Biden and he has the staff through November wants. because right. the people that work for him are guaranteed through November. They got to be doing something. <laughs> so keep an eye on him as well, being a yeah. real arbiter so, in our party. So I believe that we will look up at our convention in Milwaukee, and Mike Bloomberg will have a big stage presence. <laughs> and oh, by the way, everyone's waiting to see if Elizabeth Warren will endorse Biden or endorse Bernie Sanders. Yeah, but the big story I think that we that I don't know the answer to. Maybe somebody else does is who got this done, okay? On Saturday night in South Carolina, Andrew Yang was saying, anybody who gets out before Tuesday has leverage. Anybody who waits till after Tuesday has no leverage, right? Now, Andrew, Young didn't, or Andrew Yang didn't get this done, right? So somebody in the Democratic Party, whether it was Obama's folks or somebody, got to, you know, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and even Warren eventually, and got them to get on board. <coughs> Whoever that was, is a genius. I think one of the, the great possibilities of who that was was another Hoosier, Ron Klain, who's a high-level mm -hmm. Biden advisor, has a lot of connections to the Buttigieg campaign uh, with his senior advisor, Liz Smith. I was talking to him, uh, talking to him over the weekend. Uh, it was very, you know, very coy in his conversations, but he is someone who was a two, uh, chief of staff to two vice presidents, uh, including the Biden, was the Ebola czar, has a lot of sway. And the, if there's a Democratic insider who could get this done, it was Ron Klain. Well, that, I think it was Jim Clyburn. Jim yeah, Clyburn's, I, endorsement, I agree. Jim Clyburn's yeah. endorsement meant that these folks looked around and said, oh my gosh, we got North Carolina, Virginia, Alabama coming up. These are states that are all heavily populated. Let me finish, okay. please. All populated with people of color, and I did not do well in South Carolina, and they're going to be voting in three days, and I'm Pete Buttigieg, and I can't even get to 5% among people of color for voting. I think Jim Clyburn was the well, arbitrator. There's no doubt that, did that Clyburn had a huge impact. There's no doubt about that. But you're still, even despite those losses for these people, they have huge egos. Every one of them does. And somebody had to get them to set their ego aside. And it wasn't just a South Carolina loss or Virginia loss or whatever. Somebody sat them down and said, your time is up. Another turning point that might have made a big difference some people are looking at is Elizabeth Warren eviscerating Bloomberg on the debate stage. I mean, if you had moderates in the Democratic Party who were thinking of going with Bloomberg instead of Biden, that might have been a really pivotal moment. Yeah, and she said as much in an exit interview this week. Uh, she essentially, she was asked whether or not she recognized and intended to take Bloomberg out, and she said absolutely. Uh, in her exit speech, she talked about leaving, in very visceral terms, blood and teeth on the floor. Uh, wow. And so as a fighter, that's what she did. We did see a real reaction this week. A lot, a lot of women saying, 
you, you know, one day a woman will be president. It, it might be Elizabeth Warren. It might be Nikki Haley. It might really matter to some people that it's one and not the other. It might be someone who's not even on our radar right now. But, but one day this, this country will elect a woman president. Um, and a lot of people uh, thinking about that as Warren drops out of the race this week as well. Yeah. And, and another thing that I um, take away from Super Tuesday is this categorical rejection of socialism. You know, we thought this was the Bernie Sanders moment. And, but the fact of the matter is the youth vote didn't turn out for Bernie like it did in 2016. In his own home state of Vermont, only 11 percent of, of the under 30 vote right. turned out. Um, and it was, it was, uh, it was 15 percent in 2016. And, and that like four, uh, two, two to, to the six point um, discrepancy is, is uh, evident in all of yeah. the Super Tuesday states. And how badly did him doubling down on you know comments about Cuba and Fidel Castro hurt him on Super I, Tuesday? I wonder. I'm not, yeah. I, I, can't I don't think it hurt him. That, so, yeah. I mean, it would have hurt him if he continued through to Florida, certainly. Yeah. But he's still you know, big in the polls there. Elizabeth Warren is not doing herself any favors these last couple of days. She had, has gone on record with Kamala Harris backing her up and endorsing the comment that her own Democratic Party is sexist. She said sexism had a big role to play in me not making it, and Kamala Harris said, right I, on, sister, that's I right. I strongly disagree. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was asked whether she thought uh, sexism played a, a role, and she said there's no right answer to that question. Because she said if you say if, it does, if I say it does then, you're, whiner, then you're a whiner, right. and if you right. say it doesn't, then you have a bunch of women mad at you. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been, has proved herself to be, if not a favorite of the voters, uh, an, an incredible tactician, because now uh, she has Bernie and Biden both jostling for en her endorsement, and she can affect real policy change, either as possibly a treasury secretary, as a, as a running mate to Bernie if she endorses. Um, I mean, she can push Biden towards towards the left on some of these consumer financial protection bureau issues. So I think she's got a ton of uh, credibility and a ton of leverage at this point. Another thing we're finding that's going on in our primaries, we're picking up a lot of Republican suburban women voting in our primaries because they have no conduit in, in the Republican primary. So the suburbs are outside of Charlotte and South Carolina. And you think that has helped Biden as well? Oh, my gosh. It, it show, I mean, we looked at empirical evidence after, mm -hmm. after last Saturday. There were like 5% we were getting of that vote in our primary that ordinarily doesn't vote. That's a white, uh, moderate, female vote voting in our primary. So that's a, to me, that's a... Uh, I, that could also be yeah. a byproduct of a lot of states canceling their Republican primaries. Right, because there's no conduit. Vote. Right. There's no, I, I mean, yeah. when there was, I think Bill Weld got like 20% like of the vote. So there was no yeah. conduit uh, for that. I'll okay. be, yeah, I'll be watching the uh, the donut counties um, in May for our primary to see how many you know sort of moderate centrists um, who you know may be Republican in other parts of uh, in other races that they vote will go to Biden, um, and I think that he'll get a significant vote in the donut. You You're right, Adam, and, and that's going to I think I don't know, Mike. You, you know this. You know your party's primary better than I do, but it will impact the fifth district primary. Yeah. Because you can't vote for Biden. News at eleven. You can't vote for Biden and then vote in the Republican primary. Primary right. for Congress, and we saw two more of those sixteen candidates in that Republican primary. Well, and the, Demo all and the, and the Democrats have a primary get. too, and so right. that's right. So if, you, if you're going to get Christina Hale across the finish line, and you know she's been a panel member here, she's a good friend of mine. She's not universally loved in the Democratic Party. Okay, mm -hmm. she's pretty strong personality, and if you're going to get her across, you're going to need you're going to need all your Democrats you can get, plus maybe some Republican women who want to go over and help her. Yeah, There's an old Kentucky saying that says everybody hates them except the voters. So that's the way that Christina Hill does well. I think Mike uh, makes an interesting point because, um, you know, 
she's Christina Hale is the real big winner of this week in the fifth district because had Bernie Sanders continued his momentum, he would have been a terrible drag on her efforts to to win that race. Um, Perhaps in a lot of down ballot yeah, races, some have suggested. Another big winner is. Um, Weinsapple, if he decides to continue his right. quest for the attorney general's race. All right. Any other final thoughts on the week it was before? If we wrap I it could up? zoom out just yeah. really quickly, and you know this broader question of, of Biden and Super Tuesday, um, I think looking at the role, like critically looking critically at the role of, of how the media forms how we view politics and how the right. media's narrative uh, uh, affects affects the political narrative. And it, quick, um, it quickly changes. That's our right. It does. It does. And I mean, right? you know, like after Super Tuesday, the story was, oh, like Joe Biden's comeback. It was an underdog story, right? But like Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, and he's like when a politician He's very influential and he's been around for a long time. Like, sure been the is it audience. is it really right. an underdog story? Like just because the media says it is, that's like kind of how it's been spent. So I think just you know taking a step back and critically assessing like what the media tells us and and uh, uh, and, and 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 how they have this sort of outsized uh, ability to kind of dominate dominate the narrative. Just because they say it is doesn't mean it, that's the way it is. <laughs> Dan, I'm proud of people of color, particularly African Americans, yeah. in our role in our party in the primary. If you noticed. Iowa and New Hampshire were quickly discounted because they were not reflective of America. Nobody took that on when, they, when South Carolina came in. And 61% of the vote there was African American. Everybody showed up at the Edmund Pettus Bridge to be there the next week. So we are seeing a, a group, we worry about mobilizing our base. We're seeing a, a, a mobilization in our base that we've never had before. I want to follow real thoughts? quickly on something that Lexi said, and that is how the media is not always right. Of course, the local media is always oh, right. Oh, thank you. There's the national media that screws the national non-Fox media that screws oh, yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but this week, this week, Brian Williams from NBC oh, the was Bloomberg on air money. with yeah, a, right. um, with a, I think it was a New York, New York Times editorial board they member. the math on uh, and they how said much if, money Bloomberg, they said if, uh, could, have Bloomberg person, yeah, could have right. given, taken his $500 million and given it to every American, he could have given them each a million dollars. Well, not, not, only, <laughs> not, did it, not <laughs> only did it get by Brian Williams and this woman from the New York Times, but just think how many producers took a look at that graphic before it made it on the air. I mean, oh my gosh. I call them comrades, comrades in incompetency. You know, well, it was a mess. Well. As someone who has had a really stressful 72 hours over the weekend covering South Carolina and then racing up to South Bend you were and staying up yeah. all night, yeah. Um, I came away with a new uh, profound um, ad admiration for not only any presidential candidate who you know, from from my 72 hours, that's been every day of their life for the last 350 and days. You were exhausted just yeah. for three days, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, for Brian Williams, you know, the the endurance that it takes to do live TV late at night, I, I think it's remarkable. But uh, to Mike's point, it, it, the same thing is true with Congress and elected officials. Uh, you know, all of Congress is terrible, but your local guy's not that bad. That's right. So. It always works out <laughs> that way. That's right. right. Yeah. And watch your local news. We'll leave that. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. right. Point right there. Factual. Thanks so much news. for being here. We'll see you again <laughs> next week.